thank you so much. Ah. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming in this hot day. Let us start our reflection together by breathing together. I came from uh, both Christian mystical tradition and Buddhist Zen tradition. So I'm a Christian theologian and Buddhist Zen Dharma teacher. So I know when we really want to hear and know, experience God, the best way is stop everything, breathe deeply, and look deeply into ourselves in silence. So we will just do it. We will have a very deep three breaths together and moment of silence then I will share my mysticism and revolutionary social change with all of you. Thank you. Breathing. You know you are here. Breathe out. You are in now. Breathe in. Who am I? Breathe out. Don't know. Breathe in. I am a flower. Breathe out. I am blooming. It is a really great honor to see my former student become a leader of faith community. And also it is a great honor I'm invited by his community. So this is 30 minutes which was given to me today. I want to share with you something which is very real and which is core of my soul. It's a kind of a sum of all my life's struggle, which is mysticism and revolutionary social change. Here, the most important words is end. 
A and B. Because there are many mystics in the world, but many of them leave this world and stay in forest, stay in monastery, and pray. Which is good, maybe because of their energy, the world is still sustained. And there are some people, revolutionaries in the world. I also came from very radical student movement in Korea against military dictatorship, and we fought for democracy in our country. So in the process, I met many, many activists. And they are doing great work to bring peace and justice to this world. But they also suffer because, you know, revolution is a very long process. Revolution is a process. Yesterday's revolutionary becomes today's dictator. We have seen this so much. So how we really bring this mystical encounter with God, which is you have a direct experience of the presence of God in your life. And you also feel this oneness of love with God, with everybody around you, and with the entire world. That sustaining love from your heart and this radical social change, how can they go together? That has been my life's quest. I wanted to know what it is like to bring these two together. That's why I became a theologian, peace activist, feminist, and environmental, eco-feminist activist to bring this together. But all these things happened when I was 24. It's almost 30 years ago, or 40 years ago. I was a radical student activist at the time. And we had a demonstration. And on my way home from my school, I was kidnapped by KCIA. And I was imprisoned. And I knew so many people in the movement. They wanted to know all the names who are involved in this subversive movement. So, you know, I, had, uh, I was a very young woman, 24 years old, and unfortunately, I was tortured, and I had to stay in prison. I was born and raised in Christian church, but I just had a very happy Christian experience, but I didn't have any direct encounter of, with God listening to God's voice or see the vision. But something terrible happened to you. You are in a life-death situation. You go into liminal space, and life and death is very thin. 
I was in that space at that time. Then I heard this chanting hymn, God is my shepherd. I am not afraid. Even though I walk through the valley of the death, God will protect me. This psalm is just coming to me again and again. It's like a broken record. And even I was a very young woman when I listened to this continuing hymn, I become very, very peaceful. And even in the middle of struggle of this, you know, losing my consciousness, I sensed somebody holding my hands, very warm, soft hands, are holding my hands, and I lost my consciousness. But when I look back, in that torture chamber, there's only torturer and me. I don't think he held my hands with such a loving kindness. So it is still mystery. Who held my hands in that torture chamber? And when I woke up, the first Bible verse hit me, and the Bible verse was the, the suffering and all these the, the difficulties or even your death will never separate you from the love of God. I just knew it. Even I die today, I know I will die in the palm of God, the hands of God. That was the uh, most profound life-changing experience because it's far beyond my personality, far beyond my worldview. I grew up pretty rational Presbyterian church. And God show up, and God hold your hands, and God sing to your ear. It's a little bit far from our church tradition. But that was such a profound, life-changing experience, this. I wanted to know what it is. So I decided to study theology. So I became a theologian. But I became a kind of a theologian which will address the issue of today's world. So I become a feminist liberation ecological theologian. But I had this deep longing. All my theology books, they do not talk about this kind of experiences. They try to talk about God, theologia, Logia means words and logic of God. So you want to know about God by Logia, your knowing. But I was interested in the space and realm which is beyond my logic, beyond my words. But you know, 
And I want to teach this mysticism and revolutionary social change class, but I couldn't in Western academia. The reason was, if I teach this class about these religious experiences, you know, nowadays, every school, including theological school, we are all worried about liability, you know. If a student act out, just burst out crying and, you know, they have a seizure in your class, what would you do? What is our legal responsibility? So uh, we have this tight jacket even study theology. But I really want to ex let my student experience what mystics experienced all their life, this direct, profound, life-changing experience with God. So all this liability issue was there. Another issue is, you know, as an Asian woman who is teaching Western academia, I am already uh, the other. I'm already strange, already exotic. And if I go beyond their epistemology, epistem and worldview, I was afraid that maybe I will be uh, uh, psychologically pathologized. She is a little bit cuckoo, you know. She talk about strange experiences and also, in academia, if you go into this kind of area, which is unspeakable, un, you know, unprovable, and your scholarship becomes second or third class. So I was really not ready. But when I become 50s, I said, if I don't teach this now, when I'm going to teach it? So I just offered the class mysticism and revolutionary social change. And many of my students, some of them who took my class are here. So we went into this mystics in human history. Not all of them, but who made a great transformation because of their direct experience of, of all that is. I am who I am, I am that, that experience. And out of that experience, their heart is wide broken open and love pours out and it's almost like you are saturated by love of God and you have to do something out of it. So I chose several people like Hildegard von Bingen from Germany. She was a medieval nun. But she is the one who started woman-only monastery. And she heard these voices of God, and she advised and admonished kings and popes. I didn't know how she survived, how I didn't know why she didn't become a witch and burned to burned at stake, speaking that boldly. And she made the first opera in the monastery. And she declared that in her own way, all these nuns are here 
to meet God, not be a maid to male priest to you know, wash their clothing, <laughs> you know, cooking for them. And that's why we need a women-only monastery. It's 13th century. And she rode a horse and she go around Rhine River and even Italy. She went to many, many places to teach world leaders as a woman. So I want to bring that. Not only that, she's a kind of a mystical healer. For example, my favorite uh, words is she said, God is green energy. Is what she said. It's her definition of God. So when she has a deep prayer and fasting, and she walks through the field, many plants and trees told her, I am good as stomach ache. If you cook me and give it to some people, you can, uh, you can uh, heal some people with lung disease. So she said all these plants and minerals talk to her, and she made uh, this uh, medical book called the Physica, and still in Germany, in alternative healing, they use her book after 700 years. And she, so she was a musician, she was prophet, and she was like uh, really building a new monastery and teaching when women are not allowed to teach men at that time. And when she get trouble, got into trouble, she said only one thing, I'm a such a humble, humble the servant of God. I'm a really lowly, stupid woman, but I heard all these things from God. The case is over. And many people try to see, like a priest, whether her saying, her listening from God is real. And they got to the conclusion her listening was authentic. And also there are some Sufi mystics like Rumi. Rumi was, uh, you know, totally uh, correct person. He was a seminary president. She was a, he was a lawyer and he had a beautiful the wife and children and become a model of Islam community, great scholar. But when he met his soulmate, this uh, Sam of Tabriz, and Sam asked him question. And Rumi fainted right there. Then this uh, Sam of uh, Tabriz, he's a wandering Sufi. He's like a hippie Sufi. And he bring all Rumi's book and put it in the well. And he said, you don't need these books. Your book is written in your heart. So this encounter made him totally transformed. So there is a uh, the documentation that after that experience, Rumi went to room with Sam 
and for three months they didn't go out. They just look into each other's eyes in ecstasy. So there are a lot of jealousy and they try to assassinate Sam and finally they assassinate Sam. But when they assassinated Sam, killed him, Lumi, his heart just burst out and he said, why I'm looking for him? He's already in me. So Sam is not just his soulmate through this intimacy he encountered God. Then he become a you know whirling dervish. That is the beginning of this whirling dervish. So he in you know, whirling and whirling they do this, you know, they do this. It means they receive from this the divine spirit. Then they give it to the world. That is what Sufi did need to do and what they wear is funeral dress funeral hat and funeral dress because being a supi means you are already dead in this worldly life so that transformation with the intimacy like uh, Hildegard the transformation is her disease and her encounter with the nature room is this transformation is through intimacy then, of course, many of you, Thomas Merton, he was a monastic monk, but he speak as loud as possible about civil rights movement against Vietnam War. He wrote very, very powerful prophetic word. And we all know his experience in Kentucky. One day, he was walking down the street, and suddenly, he just felt every one of those people walking down the street, they are not separate from him. They are part of him. They are him. He has this experience in ordinary life, walking by the street. And he said, I discovered I love all of them. I love the way I love myself. I love all of them. And that experience really made him to participate in, you know, anti-war movement. You know, we are all together. We are one. You cannot kill, you know, Mennonite your church tradition and Quaker tradition also. Not killing is so important. You know, one of my uh, favorite women bishop in uh, Germany, uh, she told us that she came to Union and took my class and she said, our time is shop or shoot, shopping or shooting. That is uh, the, uh, the geist of our time. So if we just decide to not kill, we'll have a different world. Just not kill it. So you know, 
Uh, I have a lot of respect for Mennonite tradition. You have uh, this uh, conscious, you know, objection of the going to the war. I think this is a great tradition. Some of you decide to do that and keep that tradition. It's something we need to honor. So Thomas Merton's this ordinary but powerful experience in Kentucky made him always open to the world in a monastery. So he never lack of news. He listened to news and he responded. <coughs> and also, you know, Joshua Hassel is a Jewish rabbi who was a professor at Jewish Theological Seminary. I have so much solace that Jewish Theological Seminary treated him so badly. <laughs> but everybody forget about who, pro who were the professor of Jewish Theological Seminary, but Abraham Hessel, everybody remembers. <laughs> but at the time, because he came from Hasidic Kabbalah tradition, he was so mystical, you know, very uh, logocentric Jewish Theological Seminary really put him down. But this professor, he came from Eastern Europe, Hasidic tradition. He totally observed the Sabbath. Everything stops. No car, no electricity, no cooking, only candle. And you bring your friend and family under the candle. You share your meal. And for 24 hours, you do nothing. Total rest in God, Sabbath. So he wrote a lot about Sabbath, that silence, that stopping. Just to, to not produce anything, to not think anything. You just have communion in the table. That's all. But this man, most of his family got killed in Holocaust. But rather than hatred, and you know, after that, in Jewish tradition, there's a death of God theology. After six million Jews got killed, you do not trust God anymore. So they have a very strong death of God theology. But Hetzel said a very different thing. No, God accompanied us in that death, in that suffering in that Holocaust. God never abandoned us. So, uh, even though most of his family members got killed, he never lost his faith in God. If he was alive, I want to ask him, what was it? What made you not to abandon God and even have a stronger faith in God? And he's mystical, and this is the practice of Sabbath and prayer. He's a man of a prayer. He pray, pray, pray. But he is one of the most radical participants of civil rights movement. You see the picture of him arm in arm with Martin Luther King. And he also said Martin Luther King Jr. is the greatest American theologian ever. I agree.
because he just didn't talk, just write. He put his entire life on the line, like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, in a way, he's a mystic. He already saw this promised land. And we also study Alice Walker. Alice Walker, she's a mystic. She doesn't believe in any religion. But she believes. Did you read this Color Purple, her book? And there is a word, it's what she understands about divine. It is by Celia's word. She said, you know, I was like a motherless child, so sad, so lonely. Then one day, I walked through the field. And there's a beautiful color purple, there's flowers. And suddenly, in that field, I felt I am connected with everything. I am part of this flower, cloud, river, field. And I felt like I am held by great mother. And she danced and shouted and jumped out of joy. Definitely, Alice Walker has a nature mysticism. I, I want to say Alice is like a queen of synchronicity. When you read her novels and his essays, she just told, you know, one day the snake came and talked to me. And all these characters in Color Purple, they come to visit her and talk to her how to write. So if she writes this way, they are very angry. No, I don't like your writing. They come to talk to her. And if she dates with a man too long and, you know, she doesn't write, and they become very angry and jealous. And she has all this connection with this spirit. And she writes about that. And they kind of give her what it is she should write. And also, a person like uh, Dorothy Day, maybe some of you know, She's uh, for Catholic workers. I think Dorothy Days, she was Marxist, she was atheist, but something when she had a child, her daughter, her the common-law husband who was a Marxist, she said, you have to choose between me or Catholic faith. I, there's no way I will allow my daughter to be baptized in the Catholic Church. He was really against church. So Dorothy chose to be baptized, to uh, her daughter be baptized in the Catholic Church. And in a way, her spirituality is like uh, hospitality. I don't know how she did it. It's not just a soup kitchen. She let them stay in workers' house. A cold day, snowy day, these hungry homeless people come. She let them in and she fed them. So when I look at Dorothy's spirituality, it's like 
spirituality of open heart, feeding and hospitality to the stranger. You need to have a very big heart in order to do that. Otherwise, it is very hard, you know, anybody can come in to your house and you welcome them, you fed them. Then I also teach somebody like Thomas Berry, who is a Catholic uh, priest, but he's totally there the Chardin, you know, student. He said, we are spiritual beings having physical experience. The first love was came with Jesus. It is explosion of love. So there are three fire. The fire, human beings discovered the fire. Then Jesus gave a fire of love. And our uh, creation will be completed by uh, second coming of love, which is we all incarnate the love and we all become the love. That is his understanding of eschaton. And Thomas Berry is totally into cosmo, cosmos story, universe story. So he developed this earth spirituality. The so center of our faith is not Jesus. Center of our faith, this is life, this earth, which gives us so much love. This earth is a body of God. So he brings all this cosmic spirituality, modern theoretical physics, and the mysticism of theological, theoretical physics, and this cosmological story together. And he developed a cosmic spirituality. And he is the front line of ecological movement. And I also uh, did Ernesto, Ernesto Cardenal in our study, who was a uh, you know, uh, monastic monk. And he became a guerrilla fighter in Sandinista revolution because if he loves his people who was crucified by Somoza every day, his love is defend his people, become a guerrilla. So I deal with all these people in my class and try to find out what is their core. What is their commonalities? Who we call mystic? And I see this. They all have a direct connection of divine. They didn't go through priests. They didn't go through some ritual. They have a direct everyday connection with the divine. And all of them experience this oneness with everything. Like what Alice Walker said about color purple. Or Hildegarden talk about, you know, God is green energy and every plant talk to her. And also Thomas Merton, just see everybody is him in this Kentucky street.
and Joshua Hushel and the Sabbath, this deep silence is connected with everybody, including God. So Thomas Berry expanded our oneness, not just whole universe. He said, we are the first explosion of stars singing opera. That whole evolutionary journey is us. So all of us are so precious. We are all explosion of stars. So we are all stars. So they have this deep sense of oneness. And third, somehow this direct connection and oneness opened their heart so profound. Either broken open or saturated so much love is spilled out. That kinds of opening of a heart. Out of that opening of a heart, they saw the suffering of the world, not just the personal suffering, but structural suffering, economic injustice, war, and all this otherization of people who are different from you, otherization of poor, people of color, different sexual orientation, immigrant, they all try to include them in their life. And how did they achieve this? And I also saw three things they did. Every one of them have a daily practice. Whether it is a chanting, prayer, or sitting in silence, all of them have a daily practice of this stopping everything moment. You stop, you just breathe, and you settle yourself down, settle, settle, settle still. That practice. And second, they know how to listen to the silence. It's very hard for us to listen to silence. Without practice, it's very difficult to listen anything from silence because you sit down, your monkey mind go around and around and you plan for future, you regret the past. You cannot stop. It goes around and around and around. Samsara, your karma is non-stop working. But these people achieved this even very short moment. Deep silence and you surrender. And you know. You listen. You see. Something far beyond you. I met one of the greatest psychologists of our time. He, he was 86 and he was famous. Um, uh, with using ayahuasca, mushroom, and 
uh, marijuana, LSD. He brings these things and uh, made the data for people what they experienced. So I asked him, he's just retiring as 87. So I said, okay. So you went to Amazon, you went to you know, Siberia with the shamans, you tried all this ayahuasca. And so what did you learn? In a nutshell, just tell me, what did you learn after this arduous study and research? And he said, well, my brain is too small to understand the real. That's what I learned. I think that's core of mysticism. Well, no matter how brilliant and advanced we are, our brain is too small to understand this great mystery, great unknown. That's why mystics, they said, God is pure emptiness, cloud of unknowing. And in Zen tradition, my teachers say, only don't know. Just make a mantra, don't know, don't know, don't know. But this don't know is not just epistemological. It's like, oh, you know, oh, we don't know exactly. No, it's a deeper don't know. It's almost ontological. If you go deeply, 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 we just encounter this mystery, but do I know? And these people experience that. Like what Rumi said. Rumi said, I just keep asking, I'm so hungry, hungry. I'm so thirsty, thirsty, thirsty. I'm a thirsty uh, fish. And God told Rumi, you are in the water already. And you are always telling me, crying out, you are thirsty. It's like a joke. But it's what God said to him, right? So they have this ability to listen to the silence and paying attention. So they are like uh, really queens and kings of synchronicity. Something happened in your life every day. They, see, they don't say, oh, it's just accident. No, nothing happens as an accident. Just a very seldom encounter or just a ding email came to you right moment while your friend sent you just the right song for you. Something happened or just one verse come to me. For example, my synchronicity was, you know, I went to this uh, whole food market and there is an uh, egg and they said, this is produced by small family-owned, free-range, organically fed chicken. I look at it, this and I said, it's me. I have been a free-range chicken, organically fed as a tenured professor in a good university, <clears throat> good seminary in the golden cage. That's me 
I said, I, I stand in the whole pool and start to cry. <laughs> the next day, I went to some high-rise building, and I saw the eagle. And I said, wow, that's me, I, what I want to be. I really want to be an eagle, flying high and look so far, but I have been living as a small family-owned farm, free-range chicken, <laughs> fed only organic, and I have this delusion of I'm free because my range is very big. Even I have a golden cage. Only thing I need to do is two eggs a day, that's one egg a day, that's, but that's not. So pay attention to synchronicity. And most of mystics we encounter now, they are poets, writers. That's why we can meet them now. I'm sure there are so many mystics, but they never wrote anything. So we don't know. But Hildegarden, Rumi, Merton, Tignahan, Joshua, Hassel, Dorothy Day, Ernesto Carneda, Alice Walker, Thomas Berry, they left so many poetry. That's why we imagine what it is like. So today I just give you a very small introduction to mysticism and revolutionary social change. I hope all of you find that place of silence, total stillness within you. So you have a, this direct encounter with God, experience that love. And I hope your heart, your love coming out, express toward how to make this world more peaceful, just, and sustainable. So I want to invite all of you to this incredible journey of mysticism and revolutionary social change. Thank you. But I'm thinking that we should hold those until our fellowship time afterwards. And at this time, we'll be offering. And thank you, Dr. Chung, for sharing with us from your mind, from your heart, and your experience.